Before beginning, I want to express my gratitude to Stephen Mossborg for his level-headed good sense and editorial judgment. <laughs> to Stephen Protzman for his solid-as-a-rock support as our summer minister. To Paul Riedesel for organizing the music this morning. And to him, to Aaron Dyka, Aaron Thompson, and Jim Patrikas for singing. And to John Jensen for playing Charles Ives with hardly any provocation whatsoever. <laughs> As this is a holiday weekend when many people have vacation plans, you can imagine how delighted we are to see all of you here this morning. <laughs> when I was a boy, I spent nearly every summer at a cabin on land leased from the Forest Service, which was not, as you might imagine, terribly excited about fireworks. Nonetheless, on the 4th of July, my parents, or more likely the parents of our neighbor children, somehow managed to supply each child with two sparklers. Uh, how many know what sparklers are? Raise your hand. I don't need to explain this. <clears throat> the other chief components of our Fourth of July celebrations were homemade lemonade, homemade ice cream with each child taking a turn at the crank, and hide-and-seek among the trees and the boulders, a wonderful game in a forest. These are my sweet memories of the 4th of July. No flags, no sermons, no pledges, no parades. I'm sure most of you also have cherished Independence Day memories. Perhaps you associated with small boys who enjoyed making things explode. <laughs> Perhaps you still are a no longer so small boy or girl who likes to make things explode. In any case, the holiday is made for nostalgia. It is, however, also a serious commemoration of the founding of our nation, or rather of the Declaration of Independence from Britain that eventually led to that founding. As such, it's among the most patriotic and nationalistic holidays in our calendar. There are two kinds of nationalism in America. The first is an old form of patriotism found everywhere on the globe which at first blush would seem to be untenable in a country comprised of so many diverse groups, most of them immigrant. I'm talking about nationalism based on ethnic and or cultural identity, the impulse to close the borders and keep the other out, and to blame all our problems on the other. The book, America, Right or Wrong, An Anatomy of American Nationalism by Anatole Levin, from which Stephen read a quite different sort of excerpt, does a good job of explaining this kind of nationalism, but I'm not going to talk about it. You will not be surprised to hear that UUs, in northern states anyway, have never been advocates of it. The second kind of nationalism, the form that the July 4th holiday celebrates, amounts to a civic creed whose tenets are laid out in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but which is also tinged with a messianic impulse called American exceptionalism to spread the religion everywhere, everywhere in the globe, as the one true model for citizenship and government. The first thing I want to do this morning is to explain that assertion. Present-day UUs are uneasy about the messianism in our civic religion, especially as it has been translated into foreign policy, and the second thing I want to do is address the questions, how have our universalist forebears expressed their nationalism, and how should we? 
I'm going to quote often from Levin's book and from our emeritus minister John Cummins because he has so clearly explained both what is good and what is dangerous about the creedal nature of our nationalism and because he has so often modeled for us how to live out our love of country without compromising our religious convictions. The origin of the notion that we as a nation have a right to spread our gospel lies with the Puritans, who thought of themselves as born again in the new world, cleansed of the sins of the old. Here's how John Cummins put it in a bicentennial homily at Our Lady of Lourdes Church. Quote, And our universalist forebearers, the pilgrims, came to the new land seeking liberty. Somehow they survived and planted the seeds of a great democracy. They sought to build not just another country, but a new kind of country, free from the old hostilities of Europe, a land that would be, in their words, a light unto the nations. Even as civil society emerged, free from established religion, the forms of that society maintained their status as a creed. By now, in our time, the tenets of the American creed, liberty, enshrining our fundamental governmental principles in a constitution, the rule of law, democracy, individualism, and treating people as equals in ordinary and political life, these tenets are widely honored all over the globe in theory, if not in practice. But it is only in this country that belief in them is the absolute essence of our national identity, causing Levin to assert that the United States may indeed be the most truly ideological society on the face of the earth. Not, he hastens to point out, the most ideological state on earth. Here's how he explains the distinction. A number of other states still claim an infinitely more rigorous, ruthless, and extensive right of control over the thoughts of their subjects than the American state ever has or ever could. In their prime, the communist states made such claims. But even in their prime, those ideologies were resisted in large parts of the populations concerned. And after a few decades, only, not only most of the intelligentsia, but most ordinary people as well, lost all genuine belief in them while continuing to go through the required motions in public. Americans, by contrast, subscribe wholeheartedly to the tenets, including, by the way, African and Native Americans who have a right to an ironic view of the American myth. If you've heard Mark Ritchie talk about voter participation on Indian reservations or heard about the role of black and Native American soldiers in wartime, and by the way, there was a nice op-ed piece in the Strib yesterday about Native Americans in war, you cannot fail to be astonished at their patriotism in spite of the irony. For whatever reasons, Americans believe in the creed, and as you heard in the first reading this morning, this need not be a bad thing. Nor is our messianism about that creed necessarily bad. The messianic impulse had perhaps its finest flowering in the reconstruction of Germany and Japan after the Second World War. Those are now flourishing democracies. How could we not want to continue such successes? We might, for instance, wish to replace the revolting misogyny of Afghan culture with our brand of egalitarianism, if only it were possible. What is bad is the toxic combination of the messianic tinge to that creed with absolutism and dualism, as we have seen only too recently in our nation's history. I'll explain in a moment. 
Here's John Cummins again on absolutism in a slightly different context from a 1980 sermon. Quote, the real danger of fundamentalist evangelism rests not in their beliefs, which are surely their right and their own business, but their absoluteness, the assumption that all other viewpoints are wrong, that oneself is in possession of the only right answer, the only truth. The dictator, the fascist, and the religious fundamentalist are cut out of the same cloth and possess the same theology. There is only one truth, and they alone are in possession of it." End quote. Absolutism in our attitude toward alien cultures is no different. Furthermore, when you are in possession of the capital T truth, you have no need to consult others or even to imagine what they might wish or think. Sociologist and historian Robert Bella describes past American views of the Native Americans this way. For a long time, indeed for centuries, the new settlers failed to appreciate the fact that the people who lived here lived in a different dream. Whether the Indian was seen as noble or noble savage, he was treated as if he were a character in the European's dream, as if he had no dream of his own. Combined with our chronic isolationism and our ignorance of foreign cultures and languages, this is a sure-fire recipe for failure at nation-building. Afghanistan has nothing like the century-long history of development as a modern nation that Germany and Japan had before 1945. A dualist, that's dual with an A, not an E. I'm not talking about pistols at 30 paces. <laughs> is somebody who believes that there is right and wrong, good and bad, success and failure, with nothing in between. Right answers come from authority and are chiseled in stone. A teacher's job is to reveal them, and a student's job is to memorize them. To a dualist, it is literally inconceivable. I mean, it cannot be held in the mind that an authority who is by definition right and good could do wrong or bad things. We've had dualists in high office very recently. <laughs> dualists therefore make ideal subjects in an autocratic state. Here's the connection to the American creed as explained by Levin. Quote, the myths attendant on the creed include a very widespread belief that the United States is exceptional in its allegiance to democracy and freedom and is therefore exceptionally good. And because America is exceptionally good, it both deserves to be exceptionally powerful and by nature cannot use its power for evil ends. The American creed is therefore a key foundation of belief in America's innate innocence. So with innocence, freedom from sin, we come full circle to the Puritans. As modern adherents of a liberal faith, we are allergic to dualist assertions about articles of faith except, of course, our own core principles. <clears throat> but then we have to start from some premises, and one of ours is a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. All of us, in any case, begin intellectual life as dualists. If you have never attended a ceremony or service at this church at which our coming-of-agers speak in public their statements of faith, I urge you to do so. Your next opportunity will be next spring. <clears throat> Not only are these statements amazing and wonderful, 
They are also a fascinating display of a spectrum of emerging and evolving stages of intellectual development, from dualism through non-judgmental multiplicity. That's the attitude that says everybody's entitled to their own opinion and all opinions are equally valuable. <clears throat> on to relativism, several stages, and even on to commitment. I'm not going to discourse on those terms uh, as, as developmental psychologists use them, but uh, I'll be happy to give you references if you ask me later. <laughs> there is no known way to force this development, a point to which I will return a little bit later, but we are doing our level best to grow new generations of Americans who will be proof against the abuses of an authoritarian state. How else shall we express our love of country, not just on Independence Day, but every day? Permit me to suggest five ways. The first is civic engagement. Both Universalists and Unitarians have always seen civic engagement as their duty. 19th century Universalist minister Richard Eddy's monumental history, Universalism in America, mentions, quote, the advanced position of the Universalist church in regard to the various movements for peace, prison reform, abolition of slavery, temperance, and general philanthropy, end quote. Last Sunday, Stephen Protzman told us about Theodore Harbor, Parker harboring fugitive slaves and keeping a pistol at his desk to defend himself. Stephen also brought to my attention several other examples. Universalist Clara Barton founded the Red Cross. Thomas Starr King played a major role in keeping California from seceding from the Union. And A. Powell Davies, who among founding, among, along with founding, count them eight Unitarian churches in the D.C. area, served on a conference for civilian control of atomic energy and worked for desegregation. In our own congregation, there is no finer exemplar of living out the universalist faith through civic engagement than John Cummins. Here is just a partial list of themes from sermons of his that we have in our archives to give you a rough idea of how involved he was with social action and maintaining the civic fa fabric. They are, in alphabetical order, birth control, the birth of democracy in Athens, equal protection of the laws, freedom of conscience, freedom of expression, pacifism, racial justice, sanctuary, and women's rights. That's just a brief example. I'm sure there are many more. The second way to express your love of country is to explore and remember history. And you're getting this from one of the most wretched students of history on the globe. <laughs> Several times I've alluded to how widespread our civic faith is. To keep it that way requires conformity. We have to do a certain amount of forgetting just to hold together the increasingly diverse nation because the real story, particularly of our race relations before 1950, is so foul. Levin quotes the 19th century French analyst of nationalism, Ernest Renan, as saying, the essence of a nation is that all individuals have many things in common and also that they have forgotten many things, end quote. But to continue to repress the lessons of our experience and to ignore other cultures in order to nourish the myth that holds us together is to invite disaster. There's a fine balance here, and I believe firmly that we are capable of striking it. On a local level, spurred by the occasion of our sesquicentennial, the Church is attempting to sustain institutional memory by cataloging our history. We have some nice archives downstairs. 
The third way to be patriotic is to support public libraries. They are integral to the Jeffersonian ideal of an educated citizenry. They help keep literacy alive, and they broaden access to books and other media, including the Internet. The last two avenues I want to commend to you are to promote vigorous and unfettered journalism and to support education built on dialogue and investigation, not on catechism. People in power have a built-in distaste for dissent from their policies, of course. But if and when American administrations act on that distaste, they usually limit themselves to discrediting the dissenters, spying on them, and harassing them through extra-legal means if necessary. Two recent developments in our society, however, have made it vastly easier to keep the citizenry in an ignorant and docile state. One is the decline of newspapers and the filling of the resultant void by amateur opinion-making on the web and by television and radio news in the form of rant or entertainment. Access to a diversity of views is wonderful, of course, but the loss of avenues of employment for professional journalists puts us in grave danger of losing one of the most powerful checks on government that we have. As a religious people with a propensity for asking questions and refusing to accept authoritarian pronouncements, we have a duty to help our society find and establish an economic model in which the fourth estate can thrive. The other development threatening the Jeffersonian ideal is the reduction of education to rote memorization. This is driven ostensibly by economic concerns. Those who view education as just like a business naturally want to find ways to measure its output so they can hold its managers and frontline workers accountable when the outcomes fall short of goals. What is most easily measurable is scores on multiple choice tests. Hence, we have realigned the entire school system so as to run our children through one such test after another. It so happens, however, that this method of education is also the surest way to keep children permanently stuck in the dualist outlook, and hence serves above all the interests of authoritarians in government who would like nothing better. As I said before, there is no recipe for nudging a young mind past the dualist stage. Perhaps someday brain science will find some techniques. For now, all we can do is model inquisitiveness and openness in our own thought processes to give young people scope for asking questions and conducting investigations regardless of where those questions and investigations may lead, to train ourselves to listen with genuine appreciation to what they have to say, to model constructive criticism that shows we have heard them and valued their attempts, and to relinquish control where control is not necessary. Isn't this exactly what we pledge to do for one another in this religious community? Don't children throughout our school systems, the future of our citizenry, deserve the same consideration? In a moment, we will stand as we are able and join in singing a hymn from a 1912 hymnal reproduced as an insert in your order of service. For better or worse, it illustrates the state of universalists' immersion in the American myth almost precisely a century ago. Sing it lustily, if you wish, as a parody, if you wish, <laughs> but rejoice that we are still allowed to rethink its sentiments and continually to remake our relationship to one another 
and to our beloved country. Play it up, John. <laughs>